All right. So, I have this strictly timed because I, I honestly don't want to go over time. I know people have busy lives and schedules, so um, let's see if I can stick to my time limit. You mean Noel could have kept going there. That was pretty awesome stuff. I just add to that, he said that sometimes our questions lead us to faith. I would say all reason rests upon the presupposition of faith, not sometimes, all times. Um, and that is the foundation for knowledge, in fact. Um, and so that's a message in itself. Uh, so this morning, uh, I'm really, really honored to be here. I'm about to share something with you that is so close to me. In fact, I think it's the reason that I'm, I was created um, uh, to share this message um, with you and others. Um, so I have a lot to share. It's going to be fairly fast-paced. I hope you can stick with me. I hope you got your thinking caps on, because if you didn't, uh, maybe I have that extra shot of coffee, because uh, you're going to need it. First uh, Peter 3.15. First Peter 3.15 is my first scripture. I love this scripture. It's one of my favorite scriptures. I probably say that about most scriptures like, uh, like you do, but this really is one of my favorite scriptures. First Peter in chapter 3 and verse 15. And in conclusion to questions for students, I think this is a really wonderful um, topic to end on because what types of questions are raised in the minds of students? Uh, and we're about to answer three of them today. These are tough philosophical questions that wouldn't normally be brought into the realm of a church service. I get that. And I'm sorry if that doesn't suit your theology. But I think you're going to learn something really awesome this morning. Uh, and if you can get one thing, at 1 Peter 3.15, get this. Okay, It says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man who asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. The word sanctify means to set apart. It doesn't just mean to cleanse. It means to set apart, set on high in terms of the priority. So if you were to have a comparison between whose word is higher, it's God's, just in case you need a bit of help there. Sanctifying means that everything that comes in through your eyes and ears needs to be filtered through the mind of Christ. We say, well, I, am, I, am, I have the mind of Christ, but do you sanctify Christ in your heart? Do you put God as the highest in order of priority? And then it tells us to be ready to give an answer to every man. Wow. There you go. Answer every man. The Hindus, the Muslims, the atheists, and like. Answer them all. And he gives us the power to do that. But the word answer is not something that's a subjective feeling-related, Jesus loves you type of answer. I mean, there is a place for that, of course, because Jesus does love us. It is the, word, the word answer there is what we get the word apologetics from, the word apologia. And it means to give a defensible, logical reason for your position. So it goes beyond experience. Because the Muslim and the atheist can have experiences too, you know, and justify their position on the basis of that. We need to have a logical defense of the faith. In Psalm 11, verse 3, another one of my favorites, it says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? I'm going to make a suggestion. I think in our culture, the foundations have been destroyed. And I'm talking about the foundation of Christianity. What is the foundation of Christianity? The Bible. The Bible. It is the foundation for Christianity, and it has been removed from our society. And I think us as Christians have a responsibility to put it back in there. I really do. I think we should stop this silliness and, and pretending everything's fine. It's not fine. Things are in a mess, and it upsets me, and it should upset you too. We are losing our culture very quickly. The Bible tells us in First um, Peter chapter 5, verse 8, I love this verse again. Be sober-minded, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Wow. Did you know it, students? Did you know that we have an adversary? 
He's an enemy, and guess what? He's been around a lot longer than you. And naturally speaking, he's a lot cleverer. He is walking around seeking whom he may devour. Are you aware of that? Because I think most of us are not. Most of us say we're saved, happy days, hallelujah. And what do we do? We get our kids, we package them in this thing and throw them to school. And what do they learn at school? They learn non-Christian things. They learn a philosophy that's after the tradition of man. And that's what we throw them out to. So are they ready for that? Are you preparing them to, to have a defense, to have an answer for and as a 1 Peter 3.15 ends with, with meekness and fear, that's the attitude by which we defend the faith. Meekness and fear. You know what Adolf Hitler said? I love listening to people like Adolf Hitler. They make your blood boil. You get insight into the enemy's camp because that sucker was influenced by the devil. And he said, He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Hey youth, you've got someone who's after you. His name is Satan. And he's trying to own you. And I know students. Students don't like to be controlled. They like their autonomy. They like to have their autonomy. Don't tell me what to do. I've got a student. He just turned 13 yesterday or the day before. He does not like being told what to do. You remember it. I didn't like being told what I was doing at 13 either. And yet Satan is cleverly telling you what to do each day. And you don't even know it. Mm. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. Another one of my favorites, and I promise that's the last time I say that this morning. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of man, after the rulings of the world, and not after Christ. A lot of Christians say, read that and say, Amen, brother, beware of philosophy. No. The philosophy that says beware of philosophy is in itself a philosophy. It's just a self-refuting one. God is not telling us to be aware of philosophy. He's telling us to be aware of the philosophy that's after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, which is naturalism. Because the enemy has indoctrinated your kids through the teachings of media and school. hate to say it. I'm not against school. I think it's really needed. But if you're not aware, beware of the philosophies that have been taught to your kids, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose them. In fact... 70% of students who go to church leave church after they attend college. Bit of a correlation there, isn't there? 70%. Does that not upset you? That upsets me. I was one of those. I was one of those. This is why this is so passionate. I left Christ because of the philosophy that followed after the tradition of man. 18%. 18% of millennials currently go to church. Unbelievable. 34% of of, uh, the population of Ireland attend church, down from about 54% in 2000. Quite a a drop. Unbelievable. In Poland, it's 50%. Yay, Poland. 50%. In mainland Europe, it's 13%. What on earth is going on in our culture? I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther. He He said this 500 years ago. Now, I get Christians are sometimes a little bit slow. 500 years is a long time to get it, though. Check it out. I would advise that no one send his child to where the Holy Scriptures are not supreme. Every institution that does not unceasingly pursue the study of God's word becomes corrupt. I greatly fear that the universities, unless they teach the Holy Scriptures diligently and impress them on the young students, are wide gates to hell. So that was my intro. 
This morning I'm going to cover three areas of thought. Science, the age of the earth, and evolution and morality. Okay, so anyone who believes that miracles passed away with the apostles or whatever, I've got 35 minutes to do this, so I'm about to prove you wrong. Miracles can occur. So we're going to start with question one. If we can throw it up. Question one. Hey, great. What about science? Hasn't science disproven God? Oh, this is... I love these questions. I live for these questions. It's awesome. Hasn't science disproven God? I'm going to teach you two very quick little things to equip you to answer these questions. Are you ready for it? Number one, when somebody asks you a very tough question such as this, respond by saying, how so? Step one, how so? I'm going to show you why in a second. Another thing to remember is this, that anybody who asks a question of you They're trying to place the burden of proof on you. Remember this. Here's number two. The burden of proof rests upon every position, not just the Christian one. Isn't that good to remember? So when they ask you these tough questions, you don't say, oh gosh, how do I answer this? They have to have an answer too. Yeah. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? So it's not just you. It's not just the Christian. And often you'll hear, oh, the burden of proof is just for the Christian. Uh -uh. The burden of proof rests upon every worldview, including atheism. Okay, so, um, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, uh, verse 17, it says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So when we ask how so, we examine this question. How so? Has science really disproven the Bible? Has it disproven God? Well, you see, asking how so displays something. Anyone know what a fallacy is? Yeah, common error in the chain of reasoning. There is a fallacy up here. Aside from my wife and son, anyone know what it is? Fallacy of? Fallacy of reification. Okay, so study logic, guys. Every Christian should study logic. It is the best tool um, that we have in our artillery against um, naturalism and, and atheistic reasoning. So the fallacy of reification basically is where we give life to an abstraction. Okay, so science, does it have a mind? No. Can it do the things that are being attributed to it here? No, that's the fallacy of reification. Reification is okay in poetry and creative literature. In fact, the Bible uses reification when it personifies wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And that's okay in that sense. But when it comes to argumentation, reification is fallacious because it obscures factual information. So we need to point that out, okay? Uh, This is the fallacy... Sorry? Am I going too fast? Okay, let me slow it down a lot here. (laughs) I get excited. Um, So the fallacy of reification when it comes to argumentation, because it obscures logical, it obscures factual information. So I say, you know, Mother Nature, for instance. You all heard, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. Yeah? It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. What, What do you mean it's not nice to fool Mother Nature? You see, Mother Nature, nature is not a mother. And it doesn't have a mind, so you can't fool it. It's a fallacy. Now, I can say it in the sense of creative literature. So I can say, oh, fooling Mother Nature, and we all like all that stuff. But in argumentation, it's, it's, it's just not, it's a fallacy, because nature is not a mother, and it doesn't have a mind. Um, so we can't use it that way. <clears throat> so. So have science disproven God? No, science has not disproven God. Have scientists disproven God is the right to ask this question. Have scientists disproven God? Well, just in case you didn't know it, there are two types of science. Science is the study of the natural world, okay? It's the study of the physical world in which we live. There are two types of sciences. There's observational science and there's historical science, okay? Just in case you didn't know that. So observational science uh, concerns uh, testing things in the present, 
performing tests, and it brings me into, right, you all came to church today in your car because of observational science. I put man on the moon, it gives you your phones, playstations, and the rest. But historical science is something different altogether. Historical science involves interpreting things about the past and involves special creation and evolution. It's completely different than um, operational science because with operational science you're studying things in the present and you can perform a test and, and see the outcome. But with historical science, it's happened in the past so you can't study it. So to give you a very simple example, everyone here of fossils? Yeah, fossils, a bunch of dead things buried in, um, you know, uh, the dirt all over the world. Uh, and so a, a naturalistic m- a person will look at these fossils and say, well, if we know it takes millions of years for these fossils to, to, to um, uh, or a long time for these fossils, these organisms to fossilize and turn to stone through mineralization. Um, so therefore, we have all these fossils, they call it the fossil record, all over the world. So it would have taken a lot of time for these things to fossilize. Whereas the Bible-believing Christian will look at it and go, wow, what great evidence for Noah's flood. You see, if there was a worldwide flood just as the Bible says there was, what would we expect to see? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the world. So the science, we look at the science, what do we see? Billions of dead things buried in sedimentary rock, which is rock laid down by water all over the world. What a great confirmation of God's world. That, by the way, is one of the reasons the people who believe in an old earth don't accept Noah's flood, because it would have messed with the radiometric dating methods. And I'll get to that in a moment. Science. Science. What a heavy-hitting, persuasive concept, isn't it? Science. Someone makes a statement, and they say, but I've got scientific evidence. Ooh, and all of a sudden you say, these guys got credibility. But this statement up here, hasn't science disproven God? It kind of hijacks the word science from the atheistic perspective, doesn't it? Because it kind of says the science is on the side of the atheist. But science is not on the side of the atheist. Science is, is not, it's a tool that we use to understand the world. It doesn't have a mind. And so therefore, that there, we've got to point it out. No, sorry, Mr. Atheist, science does not support your position. In fact, if anything, it, it supports the Bible's position, but it doesn't have a mind, so it can't really support any. People say that science is the neutral ground. It's the neutral ground by which the the God debate will be decided. Really? Is science neutral, guys? Is science neutral? Science is something that people use to understand the world. So we look at Luke 11, 23, and Jesus says, if you're not for me, guess what? You're against me. Now, think about it. I'm saying that science is the neutral ground. So am I for Christ? No. Therefore, I'm against him. Therefore, there is no neutral ground. The fallacy of neutrality is another fallacy. We don't allow people to say the science is the neutral ground by which the debate is resolved. It just is not so. Here's a quote, an interesting quote from Carl Sagan. He's a famous atheist. He got it. He understood that there was something going on behind the scenes other than just science. He understood it, and here's what he said, and it's quite wordy, forgive me for that. He says, we have, talking about uh, naturalistic atheists, we have a prior commitment a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Very wordy, I know. No matter how counterintuitive these thoughts are. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. Check this out. He says, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. 
Interesting, isn't it? So Mr. Sagan got it. He understood that when he came to his science, he didn't come with this, this neutral position and the science led him to the truth. That's another fallacy. Science doesn't lead anywhere because it doesn't have a mind. People, through the use of science, do the leading. And he got it. He said that we've got an a priori commitment, a commitment to materialism by which we do our science. So it's not by science that Carl Sagan and other naturalists and these guys reject God's existence. It's by their presupposed ideology of materialism. The materialism is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. Amen. That's what they believe. But that's not science, folks. That's not science. That's a belief. That's a belief. According to the Christian worldview, God is immaterial outside of time, space, and matter. So, what is science all about? Studying the material world. So here's a question. Here's a statement, rather. Most Christians don't like it when I say this. I apologize if I step on your toes. By the tools of science, you cannot prove or disprove God's existence. By the tools of science, you cannot prove or disprove God's existence. Because the tools of science are, are about investigating the material world. God is immaterial. Okay, just bear that in mind. As Carl Sagan so openly admitted, it's by our pre-commitments that we bring as baggage to the scientific equation that we either reject or accept God's existence. It's not by science alone. So, simply put, have scientists disproven God's existence? Nope. They have not. Because by the tools of science alone, you cannot prove or disprove the, the immaterial. You just can't do it. No matter how clever you think you are. Okay. That was question one. Pretty straightforward. All right with that? Question two for students. <clears throat> this one came into the website. It's long. I didn't write this. One of you guys wrote this. Um, I'd like to know who it is as well. Maybe we can have a chat later. Uh, this is a really good question. Um, and I think now is a good time to deal with it. Let me read it. What should I say to someone who says that evolution can explain morality just like it can explain how all the different species evolved in response to environmental changes and the need to survive? Woo! It's a biggie. What could be your first response to this? Who said it? Yes! How so? How so? So what does how so do? It buys you a bit of time, doesn't it? Because that's a tough question, isn't it? Who would like to be asked that question? Who would like to be asked that? Okay, okay. It's a tough question. Asking how so buys you time and it hurdles the apologetical ball back into the court of the unbeliever and gets them to serve you a reason for the hope that is in them. And you're going to find out that they don't have very many reasons to support a position. Wonderful. Asking how so. How so? How so? So, how so spots... Um, a, a fallacy. I love my fallacies, just in case you didn't know. There's a fallacy up here, and I'm not going to ask you to spot it because this is more difficult to spot. This is called the complex question fallacy. And it's a little bit like, so see, see the, this question is sitting on the premise that evolution supports changes in species, yeah? So I would challenge that assumption. So for instance, if I were to meet you today and say, hey, do you still play soccer? What a strange question to ask someone the first time you meet them. It should be broken down into two questions. Have you ever played soccer before? And by the way, do you still continue to do so? It's a complex question. I've assumed that you play soccer in my question, like this question has assumed that evolution has happened. So I would divide this into two parts. First of all, I divide it into evolution and its meaning, and secondly, I divide it into evolution and morality. 
So evolution and its meaning. What does evolution mean? Change. But there's no use saying that change is the cause of everything changing, is it? So what does it mean specifically when it comes to changes in species? You see, evolution has two basic meanings, microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution, get this, is science. Just a lousy word to use because it's not really evolution. Because evolution means change. And we see change in, in, in species, don't we? We see dogs that are big, dogs that are small. Useless chihuahuas. We see cats. <laughs> we see cats. Cats who've got like lots of hair and cats who are bald. You know, we see, we see horses who've got big, strong frames to carry a man and we see them little ones that can't really do much. We see birds with big beaks, like Darwin. He liked his birds. Birds with small beaks. We see moths with white wings, moths with um, dark wings, and so on. But what do we observe through the use of observations, our eyes, in, in, when we talk about science? What do we observe? Dogs producing dogs. Cats producing? Yeah. Horses producing? Yeah, yeah. Moths producing? Do we see any changes outside of species? Do we ever observe that? No, we don't. No, we don't. Kind of backs what God says in his word. In Genesis 1.25, it goes like this. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind. Okay, species. And cattle according to their kind. And everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind. Beautiful. Kind of supports that. And that's observational science supporting the Bible. But macroevolution. Now, this is different. Macroevolution. This is where the crooks of the matter lie. Macroevolution is where all things are related over time. Man is related to a banana. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? That's what they believe, folks. They believe all things throughout time, space, and matter is related or are related. And we reject that idea. That's the evolution that we reject. Because, you see, they did not observe that. They do observe variations within kinds, yeah? But asking how so gets under, well, which... Which definition of evolution do you mean here? Do you mean change within species? Because I'm with you on that one, baby. That's science. In fact, calling it evolution simply allows them to conflate the two meanings together. Now, I'm going to be nice and say that they don't do it on purpose. But I know some of them do. Some of them know what they're doing. It's completely fallacious, though, and we need to point it out. We need to be um, sharp-minded and not let them away with these fallacies. Now let's look at evolution and morality. How am I for time? Ooh, doing all right, doing all right. Okay, how am I for time? So uh, you did a great job of this a few weeks ago. I loved the way you touched on God being the foundation of uh, morality. Um, And it was awesome. And if we look to Judges 21-25, it says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. The non-God man, non-God view of the world leads rationality, or excuse me, leaves morality open to a subjective position. You remove God from the equation, every man does right in his own eyes. Well, why is that? Because material cannot account for something that is objective. When I say objective, I mean outside of man, not dependent, which is what subjective means, not dependent upon man. It stands outside of him. It remains the same throughout time. So strangely enough, evolution, in all its wonders and glory, cannot actually give an account of morality. Now when I say evolution in this sense, I'm not talking about 
the compromised position of theistic evolution. Maybe we'll have another session on that later. I'm talking about atheistic evolution. It cannot account for objective standards of morality at all. Think about it. What part of matter, material in motion, that's all we have, matter. Which part of matter over here gets to decide which part of matter over here is right or wrong? Can you see a kind of problem there? You can't tell this person that he's right or wrong and and vice versa. So guess what? Morality changes over time. It's subjective. Hey, this time next year it might be okay for me to shoot you and you've got no complaint because it's subjective. I stipulate my own standards. And by the way, today's standard is let's kill all the you know, Bible believers and you've got no complaint against me. You may not like it. It may be uncomfortable for you, but logically speaking, you've given me subjective morality. I can do what I want as long as I can get away with it. Make sense? Typically when atheists um, try to justify morality... They do so by attacking the Christian position of morality. Typically. But think about it. Just because they can attack our position, and let's just say, let's just for the sake of argument say they, they successfully attack it, does that mean that they have justified their own position? This thing is crawling all over. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, they can't successfully attack our position anyway. Um, but Greg, I think it was yourself, last week, you were um, touching on this question uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a different sense. Is God good? I love that. Is God God? And so we say, well, you know, can, can, can the God view, or the question that your friend on the street said, if God is good, how do you explain evil? Yeah? If God is good, how do you explain evil? How do all these bad things happen? Well, I've got a more profound question this morning. If God is not, if he does not exist, what is evil? Mm-hmm. What is evil? There is no evil. You see, one set of molecules over here does something to this set of molecules over here. So what? So what? You see, only because we've got an objective standard of morality is, is there a problem with that. And by the way, the unbelievers too rely on this objective standard of morality. They just refuse to give in to who it came from. They arbitrarily hijack our position of morality and we, we mustn't let them away with it. We've got to point it out. Hey, Mr. or Mrs. Atheist, you're borrowing from my worldview by assuming there's such thing as right and wrong. In your position, there are no rights, there are no wrongs, there's matter in motion. One chemical exposes another, whatever. Only because Christianity is true can we have such a thing as absolute morality. Without Christianity, you cannot have it. You cannot have it. We know that recently there's been a shift in our culture in terms of what is right and what is wrong. And we only have to look back to a few, few years and we can see some of those things come into existence in, in our voting and so on. People are beginning to become consistent with their professed views about reality. What professed views are they? That we're animals. So hey, if you're an animal, go act like one. And that's exactly what's happening. We've legalized killing of babies. If that doesn't hurt you, you're dead. We've legalized killing of babies. That's what we've reduced morality to. Only the Christian worldview can make sense of morality. Question three. What about the age of the earth? Oh, Bob, no. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't talk about something so controversial. But I must.
lost. I'm lost. And by the way, I'm doing so in the same spirit that 1 Peter 3.15 said, meekness and fear. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. I genuinely don't. You, you believe what you want to believe. But as Christians, what does 1 Peter 3.15 tell us to? Sanctify the Lord in our heart. So I would challenge every one of us, myself included, to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts in terms of the age of the earth. You see, this is very personal to me. You say, oh, come on, Bob. The age of the earth is not a salvation issue. It's not. It's an authority issue. You see, when I was younger, evolution and so-called science were not the issues for me. They were tough questions, and I didn't have any answers. I didn't go to a church which preached the Bible as the word of God per se when it came to these matters. And so I was out on my own. I did not have any answers to these questions. And it was this that got to me ultimately. You say, really? The age of the earth? Yes. Yes, it did. Why was that? Because I'd go to school, geology. I'd have science, biology. I'd have social studies, sometimes uh, history. All these things. What would they say? Billions of years ago. Millions and millions of years ago. And I'd be thinking, right, okay. Okay, okay. And I'd go back to my, my home and my church. And I'd pick up the Bible in Genesis 1 and say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and the light was good. And he saw it, and he separated the light from the day and the darkness. He called night and the day, he called light and whatever. And he said, In the beginning was the first day. And I read that, and I said, I've got a problem with that. Because my problem was that I was being taught in school billions of years ago. Sounds better when you say it that way. I joke, of course. But that's what I've been taught. And those seeds of doubt that were sown in my heart caused me to lose eight years. Eight years of walking with the Lord. Unbelievable. I don't want the same things happening to your kids. So listen up. You're about to learn something. I'm going to expose a really big lie. A big lie. Ready for it? You sure? Ah, you seem to be going to sleep on me now. Have I bored you already? I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. (sighs) Okay. What about the age of the earth? What's the first question we can ask here? How so? How so? How has science or scientists proven the age of the earth? It's a good question. Very relevant. So what are the two sciences we think of? We think of geology and astronomy. Everyone know about dating mechanisms? Everyone know about, yeah? Everyone familiar with those? We're going to look at those now. So in church, yep, yep, we are, because they're necessary. It's necessary to look at these things um, to understand what's actually going on. So radiometric dating, not to bore you, is where we've got, say, for instance, we take one element, a radioactive isotope, and it decays into another radioactive isotope. We'll take a simple one, carbon-14. Carbon-14 is used to date organic material, how old the organic material is. So we've got our carbon-14, which decays into nitrogen-14. Simple. And what scientists do, and I love this, they observe the amount of time it takes from one uh, carbon-14 to uh, decay to nitrogen-14. And they look at it and they say, well, it takes 5,700 years for half of it to decay. So when they go, wow, we've got a rate. 
And this is brilliant. This is observational science, isn't it? But what is age? What is age? Age is a concept of history. Age is the amount of time in which something or someone existed. The tools of science can be used to measure length, volume, height, mass, velocity, energy, all these wonderful things. But not age. Not age. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? Point your telescope at age for me. It cannot be done. Age is a concept of the past. Can you experiment on the past? Show me the man who can point his telescope at the moon at 3 p.m. last Tuesday. Can't do it. Simple scientific experiment. You can't do it. So why is it that in geology and astronomy we're taught that the Earth is billions of years old? You see, people say, well, t- okay, okay, just rest there for a moment. Let's look at astronomy. Shh. You know, when we look at the star, it takes millions of years for the light to reach Earth, yeah? Yeah? So they say, when we're looking at it through a telescope, we're seeing it back in time. That's called a synchrony convention. I don't agree with it. I think it's um, bad science, but hey, it's out there. But we have to think about what we, when we're dealing with age of something, there are two things at play. We've got, when we're trying to figure out the age of something, we've got to know when it first came into existence. T1. When it first came into existence. And then when it died or current time. T2. Scientifically speaking, through the observations of science in the present, we can only know T2 at most. We can't know T1 through the scientific method because you can't observe the past. Ever. Can't be done. It's just not possible. Now, it's not saying you can't know it. For instance, I can look at your birth cert and know that your age is X, Y, and Z. But that's not science. That's an historical document. So interestingly enough, the tools of science cannot be used to prove the age of something, scientifically. Since geology and astronomy are branches of science, it follows then that neither geology or astronomy can prove the age of the Earth. Interesting, huh? Very, very interesting. Why is it for years and years and years you've been told billions of years? In fact, I... I encourage anyone to go to a library, pick up the latest book on dinosaurs for kids, toddlers, and if it doesn't say in the first two lines or first paragraph, billions of years, it's not a book on dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Billions of years ago, these critters walked the earth. And so Hitler apparently said, if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, the people will believe it. So for years and years, for billions of years, we've been taught billions of years. (laughs) So the people have believed it. It's, It's quite funny. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so to know the age of something I mentioned that you can look at an historical document so let's just look at um, radiometric dating and then I, I'll close up on that so when it comes to radiometric dating there are a number of assumptions we make Okay, um, we, we assume things so for instance, the initial conditions alright, initial conditions we don't know the initial conditions of the, the thing that we're looking at So we have to assume them. And I'm going to illustrate this in just a second. The other thing we also assume is the rate. The rate remains constant. It's an interesting thing about rate. Why do we conflate rate with age? So if I was to sit here right now and I was to look at my watch, which is broken at the moment, and I was to look at my watch and say 60 seconds, therefore you're 35 years of age. It doesn't follow, does it? Just because I know the rate someone's aging, does that mean I know their age? I have to make certain assumptions. And let's show you what those assumptions and how fallacious they are. We'll get a candle. 
And if I was to burn a candle for a certain amount of time, and then I'd bring you into the room where the candle is and say, hey, I'll ask you a simple question. How old is the candle? You say, what do you mean how old? How long has it been burning? Oh, yeah, no problem. And so what are you going to do? You're going to take out your timer, and you're going to measure within, say, two hours how long it's burned with, say, half an inch. And then what are you going to do? You're going to extrapolate back into the past and stop when? At T1, at its initial height. What was its initial height? You don't know. Now, you can say, well, I know those candles, Bob. You got me there, baby. They're sold down there, you know, at that candle shop. And they're six inches long. So now I've got my initial height. But you don't know I bought that candle in that shop. They could also sell eight and ten inches ones. Or else I could have cut the bottom off it. You have no idea. You must assume it. But if your assumptions are wrong, your dating method is wrong. Absolutely right. Secondly, we've got the other assumption that the rates remain the same all the time. I could have been a little bit cheeky. And I could have pumped more oxygen into the room as I was burning my candle. And it would have increased the rate of burning and therefore your age is wrong. Noah's flood would have messed with the radiometric clocks, guys. This is why anyone who prescribes to be a Christian and who accepts many of the years will not accept that Noah's flood was global because they would have messed up the clocks. And you can't have it both ways. But I just accept what the Bible says. I personally think that that's the best way to understand what the age of the earth is. You see, we're at a point here now where we say, okay, okay, all right. We've got a Christian over here saying the world is young. We've got a non-Christian over here saying it's old. Which is it? Can we not just use the neutral method of science to figure it out? Science is not neutral. People bring their beliefs as baggage to the equation. So the only way we can actually suss it out is to do what's called an internal critique. I have to take my Christian shoes off for the sake of argument and stand in my non-Christian shoes for the sake of argument and figure out, is their position internally consistent? And we find out, it's not. You see, Mount St. Helens erupted in the 80s and they measured the age of the rock. How old was the rock? Millions of years. Millions of years old. It was just late in the 80s. How was that? Well, you see, because... There was daughter element present in the first place, and that's assumptions, that's an assumption that an atheist will make. That there was no daughter element. And so they measured the amount of daughter element and they think, oh yeah, it's X amount of millions of years old, but Mount St. Helens proved that theory wrong. There are other things that go wrong when you look at an internal critique from an age of the earth perspective. And I'm just going to mention very I'm going to for the sake of time, I'm going to go quickly. I'm almost out of time, sorry. I'm going to go very quickly through these, okay? So we've got the moon's recession. We're losing the moon every year about two inches, I think. And there's nothing you can do about it anyway, so don't worry. And um, the moon is going back. So if you think about it, we're losing it. So if you go back in time, it was closer. With me so far? Yeah? Anyone lose me? Okay. So if you go back a few thousand years, not a problem. You go back 1.4 billion years, you have a problem. <laughs> you see, the moon is kissing the earth. Not going to work well. All right, that's, that's problem number one. Problem number two is spiral galaxies. Spiral galaxies are cool. Do you ever see those cinnamon things you can buy in Lidl and Alley, those circles? A, a galaxy is in a spiral shape, a spiral galaxy anyway. And what happens is they wind up. They're constantly winding up. So if you go back a few thousand years, you don't have a problem. But if you look at the galaxies using observation sciences, science today, we should expect, if the world is billions of years old, to see very tightly knit together galaxies. And what do we see? Very loosely knit together galaxies. Therefore, it's consistent with a young Earth and inconsistent with an old Earth. Another example is the Earth's magnetic field. I love this one. 
Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker. Okay. Which means in the past it was? Okay, this is great. Deductive reasoning. You go back 6,000 years, I think it would actually be quite pleasant. A nice feel, a little bit stronger magnetic field. You go back 50,000 years or so, <laughs> then we have a problem. You see, that goes from a pleasant conversation to the iron in our blood being ripped out of it because of the magnetic fields, the strength of it. That wouldn't be pleasant. You see, there's a problem with the age of the earth in the secular assumptions. We look at comets, my personal favourite. I have more, but I'll stop in terms of timing. Comets. Comets are basically balls of ice flying through the atmosphere or, or space. And as they pass by the sun, they melt a little bit, and that's where they have a tail. Using secular assumptions, which is what we need to do, we're standing in their shoes, remember, we see that, well, they only last about 100,000 years. It's an upper age limit. Yeah? So the question is, how so? Why do we still have comets if the Earth is billions of years old? I know, it gets negative every time. I, I laugh too. Billions of years. So, and, and, and we, we pose these questions to these uh, naturalists. And what do they say? Do they give up their fundamental beliefs? Well, if I came to you now and I say, you know what, Christ did not die, die or resurrect from the dead, and I've got scientific proof. Are you going to take me from my word? Or are you going to hold firmly to your presuppositions that Christ did die for your de- uh, salvation? Yeah, you're going to hold firmly to it. Just like they hold firmly to their beliefs. They need millions of years. If they don't have millions of years, if they don't have evolution, if they don't have evolution, they have to believe in God. They want to remove him. You see, and this is the thing. Science does not support millions of years, folks. 90% of scientific methods support a young earth. 90%! They are more consistent. Now, uh, hear me when I say this. They are not an ultimate proof. The age of the earth is not an ultimate proof. I can't say, I can't look at these, for instance, comets. You'd think you have them now, wouldn't you? you think, how are you now, Mr. Atheist? Where's your millions of years now? And what are they going to say? They're going to come up with what's called a rescuing device. They're going to say, oh, yeah, 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 we know about the comets issue, and we're figuring that one out. Yeah, how are you figuring out? Well, you see, there's an Oort cloud. An Oort cloud, you say? Yes, there's an Oort cloud. An Oort cloud which produces more comets. Go, wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> Here's a question. Have you any scientific evidence for that Oort cloud? And they go, yeah, we do. I said, show me. We still have comets. Can you see the fallaciousness? You see, we still have comets. Therefore, there must be an oracle because we know the world is billions of years old. They hold on to their presuppositions very tightly, regardless of the evidence. Okay, I'm going to start closing down now. I started off by saying, 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. So we come to the age of the earth issue as Christians, and we go, this is an issue for us, yeah? This is an issue. And so we de-sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, and we take the ideas of man. We come to the, and we ask the question, is there any scientist, apart from scripture, who concludes a young earth? And the answer is no, of course. But we ask the question, is there any scientist who, apart from scripture, has clu- uh, concludes resurrection from the dead? No, there's not. And what do we do with that one? Do we reinterpret the scripture? Mm-mm. That one we sanctify the law of God in our heart because our faith depends upon it. Our salvation depends on it. But the other part, well, we, we let them have that one. No, no, no. We sanctify the law of God in our heart in all points. Otherwise, we are being inconsistent and we're allowing our students, we're allowing them, Satan, take a piece of, their, uh, of, the, of the Christian puzzle. To summarize, three questions I mentioned. Let me just summarize and then I'm done, I promise. 
Firstly, we ask the question, science, has it disproven God? We realize that, wait a minute, science doesn't have a mind, it cannot do the things that are being attributed to it. Science is a tool that we use to understand the world we live in. Yeah. So then, like any tool, we take, say a knife or a fork, what is it that turns the kitchen utensil into a murder weapon? Man. Man. And what is it that turns the tools of science from a wonderfully God-fearing thing into something that supports the notion of evolution and and, and atheism. Man. Yeah, right. Second, we we looked at um, the question of morality and evolution and and, um, and, and changes in species. We discussed the fact that there are two types of evolution. One is scientific. Lousy word, evolution, for it, but it's a change within uh, a species, and that's a biblical concept. So we should be okay with that. But we understood that the way the evolutionists support their notion is that they conflate the meaning of the two words. And it's called the bait and switch fallacy. They equivocate on the word evolution. We shouldn't allow them away with that. We saw that in order to support molecules to man evolution, evolutionists just simply commit fallacies left and right. They do not have a logical foundation to justify their position. And then finally we discussed the question of the Earth's age. My personal favourite. Because this is where they got me. Satan was out to get me. And he got me. He got me with this one. In this we discovered, and you may not have known this, that age is a concept of history. I cannot take out my ruler and measure age like I can other things. Because it's a concept of history. We concluded that the only real way to determine the age of, say, a person is to consult their birth certificate, yeah? Or a passport. And so this morning... In closing, I'm concluding that we consult the historical document of the universe when we're understanding the, the, the world we live in in terms of the age of the earth, the Bible. And we look to it and we say, well, actually, there is no problem with the age of the earth. The only problem is with the age of the earth from the biblical perspective and the ideologies of man, which the Bible says are willingly ignorant. So who are we going to trust? Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to put our whole lives in? Who are we going to entrust with everything? The Bible or the theories of fallacious men? I would suggest the Bible. I would suggest the Bible. Amen. Are you done, Bob? I'm done. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was for that. good. Thank you. I Thank hope you. I hope you at least um, are thinking, and probably some of you are frustrated and like uncomfortable, and that's.